everyone. I'm Brendan, you know me. Um, if you can't find Genesis 1 in your Bibles, then we love newcomers, welcome. Um, this is clearly the first time you've been in a church. Um, I'd love to talk to you after. But we are looking at Genesis 1, so I'm going to pray, and then we will engage with uh, the first chapter in God's Word. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask you open it to our hearts as you open our hearts to what it has to say to us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Genesis is an incredible document, and it is so richly packed with insights about God and man that, it, um, that people have been reading it for something like 3,500 years now, and reading it and then writing about it, and then reading what other people have written about it, and then writing about what other people have written about it, and then reading what those people have written about, what people have written about it, and so on and so forth for thousands of years. And it's without a doubt the greatest ancient historical document. There are some that are older. We have older copies of some historical documents than Genesis. The Enumerilish, which is the Babylonian creation story, we have some older records for, but those are recorded on tablets. They're hard to um, reproduce. Not a lot of them left. Um, some of the records of the things that, that Buddha said were only about a thousand years younger than, um, than Genesis, and those tend to be written on old palm leaves, which don't last terribly long in a um, humid Asian environment, as opposed to a nice dry cave in Israel. Um, so one can say that the Genesis account has been preserved suspiciously well, even providentially, as if someone wanted it preserved. And so it's lasted for these thousands of years. And it brings up these interesting implications. Uh, and one is that Genesis, and particularly Genesis 1, is fundamental not just for our faith, but for our civilization. It's kind of what uh, our world is built upon. Long before we were here, there were people who had read Genesis 1, who had walked it into their lives um, and lived it out. And we can sort of take for granted the impact that Genesis has had on our world. The way that, that God works, revealing himself through uh, his plans and through scripture, is called progressive revelation. That's the, um, the fun term we use for it. He shows more and more of himself as time goes on and as scripture goes on. So Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments, for example. He just knew that God had a covenant with him. The law didn't come until Moses and then... Moses' people didn't have a lot of insight about the, quite the depth of penetration of sin into the human nature and how helpless they were to fulfill God's covenant. They really thought they could do it. And then 800 years later, after numerous invasions and corrupted kings and total failures of uh, priests and people, the Jews knew that the covenant that God had given them was something they were unable to fulfill on their own and that their only hope was that God's Messiah would scrub the world clean and rule directly. But even they didn't fully grasp the implications of an eternal life or eternal death and the nature of that future kingdom. And it's only when John the Baptist comes along and then Jesus Christ himself that that progressive revelation becomes full. It's the Jews at that time know that, that God had a, a law for them to live by, that he'd, he'd given them that law, that they were unable to fulfill that law, that they need a sacrifice to take away their sins and a savior to rule over them and deliver them from eternal death into eternal life, only after that accumulation of knowledge. And it's only after Christ's death and his resurrection that it was really understood that that sacrifice and that savior who would rule were the same. And that's the solution, not just for the, the sins of the covenant people, but sufficient for the entire world, that it can overflow that covenant and save all peoples who would come into relationship with God. Or alternatively, 
It would be the unforgivable rejection of that free gift of God's blood. And that means that Genesis is the first thing in Scripture that God wants people to understand. It's key then to understanding everything else in the fullness God wants us to understand it. So it's worth us spending a fair bit of time there. But on top of that, the, the writing of Genesis is a recorded tale that's so old, we need to, to consciously and deliberately uh, think about it carefully and, and try and understand it very well. So it's worth asking, how are we supposed to read Genesis? Well, here are the three big options for that question. Um, should we read it as a historical record, as a, as a literal description of what occurred at the creation of the world, the order in which God assembled the elements of the universe and what he did during that creation process? Should we... Uh, well, if, if that's the answer, then it's important not so much what's written down, but the events that it describes, really. Not so much who it was written to, but what it was describing historically and the impacts that has on us. So should we read it like that? Should we read it as a, a poetic story, one that has... A, we should concern ourselves with the literary veracity of it less than the, the beauty of the work and what it's trying to teach us. What does the style of writing emphasize in there? What's a listener supposed to take away? That's taking Genesis as a myth. And by myth, I don't mean as a fake story like Bigfoot, but as a, a cosmic story from which lessons are supposed to be drawn. Should we read it like that? Or should we look at it as a cultural landmark, not so much for its poetic or historical value, but where it landed in the ancient world and what it meant to the people around it, how it changed their lives? Because this is written to the descendants, the Hebrews, the descendants of ancient Babylonians who were emerging from slavery in Egypt and going into the land of Canaan. They have a fair bit of multicultural uh, diversity in their local landscape. They have a fair few ideas of how the world started and who did it. So what did this mean to them? And why is this the cornerstone of the world that we know and not the Enumerilish or the Greek story of the universe hatching from a cosmic egg? Are these questions worth asking? Historical, poetic, and cultural. The, you'll be shocked to learn the answer I was building up for is yes, all of these things are important. If you accept the poetic value of Genesis but reject historical and cultural ones, then you've disconnected it from reality. If you take only the historical claims, then you're in danger of missing the, the big cosmic truths that make this story the basis of, of our modern minds, of the, the way that we think about the world and our culture. And if all you care about is the, the cultural idiosyncrasies of the creation story, then it has nothing to say about your life now. But we have a God who loves to act in history, who loves to embed cosmic truths in poetic scripture, and who has guided our world through progressive revelation to a greater understanding of who he is, over and above all of those claims that have been made about him that have been false. He's a God who revels in giving the truth to the world. So this whole thing matters, and we should engage all of it. So now the, the historical claim of Genesis is the one I actually don't want to spend a lot of time on tonight, although I am not certainly uh, disparaging it. It's true and good, but firstly, we only have so much time, and the attacks on Genesis as historical document come so thick and fast that they deserve more than 10 minutes to defend all by themselves. So I encourage you, therefore, if you've ever been discouraged about the truthful nature of Genesis... Um, or if you have a question you'd like to ask, check out our friends at CMI. Go to creation.com. They would love you to send them questions and uh, to peruse their many articles that explain the details of the, the historical account of Genesis in as much detail as you like. 
And really, the, the burden of, uh, of creation-believing scientists is deflecting the same attacks over and over again. So if you come up with an original question, I'm sure they'll be super glad. But what I want to look, look at tonight is these two other angles, the, the, what I call the, the cultural-historical angle um, and the poetic archetype angle. Because I think they actually get the least attention in a lot of churches and, and possibly this church because we are a Bible-believing church and I think we're afraid somehow of reducing Genesis to less than it is if we don't front the apologetic side of it. So I want to talk about the other stuff as well tonight. So here's some good questions. Some good questions from that cultural, historical background. What does it mean to the people who, uh, who received Genesis? Where does this account come from? Who wrote it? How do they know what to write? How old is the story? And if it's true, why did no one else around it seem to know until they were told? These are all good questions. Well, our oldest fragments of the book of Genesis are about 2,000 years old. They're from the Dead Sea Scrolls. They show up from around about Christ's time. They were copied and they're hidden away in caves in Israel by a group called the Essenes who were uh, sort of secluded Jewish separatists. They liked to live apart from the world. They thought that uh, Jerusalem was corrupt, that God was going to blow it away, and they didn't particularly want to be there at the time. Kind of like ancient Amish people living off in the, uh, the deserts in Israel. That's our oldest fragments of Genesis, about 2,000 years old. But history suggests that Moses was probably the one who assembled Genesis into its present form. And that's probably 1,500 years or so before that. Or some people speculate on whether or not it was Moses or Moses' followers attributing it to him, but there's no particularly good reason to doubt that Moses was the guy. The uh, events in the story, of course, in the, in the narrative of Genesis, occur at the beginning of the world. So that's something like 6,000 years ago, give or take. But the biggest question here is how did Moses know to write this? Obviously, he wasn't there. He doesn't have an eyewitness account himself. Did Moses sit quietly and take notes while God rattled off Genesis verbatim? Probably not. The God in Genesis, the name given to God is Elohim. That's an older name that we get than the one that he gives to Moses. He says, I am who I am. It's Yahweh as written in the text there. But he's called Elohim in Genesis. It's an older name than that. Older even than El Shaddai, which means the almighty God. That's the name that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to use for God. In Exodus 6.3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I was not known to them. And we know that Yahweh means I am that I am. He is the God that is God. As opposed to the gods who are false, the ones who are not God. But before he gave that name, he gave this other name, El Shaddai, to the patriarchs, and we translate that as God Almighty. Quite literally, it means God of the mountain, the mighty mountain, as the, uh, the highest place where God sits. And this makes sense as a kind of a, a poetic picture of who God is. He calls Moses and Abraham and Jesus up onto mountains to meet with him. Mountains are ancient. They do not move. They are high up and close to heaven. It's a decent picture of almightiness. The Bible warns, however, against taking this God of the mountain as a literal epithet, as if he only works on mountains, however. There's a great story in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 20 where a, a Gentile king, uh, Ben-Hadad, is attacking the Israelites. And they come in and they attack the Israelites in the hill country um, and they get, in the parlance of the young people, wrecked. Um, they don't go very well, they regroup, they run off, 
And then the advisors of King Ben-Hadad tell them, ah, well, the gods of the Israelites are gods of the hills. That's why they beat us. So next time we'll fight them on the plains and then we'll overpower them. And as God likes to do, he tends to take that sort of thing as a teachable moment. And so 7,000 Israelites run over and flatten something like 120,000 Gentiles on those plains. And you must assume then that the uh, advisors to the king didn't come into work the next day. That's the kind of credibility loss you don't recover from. That's a resign by email and change your name kind of moment. Anyway, it's a little off track, but I like that story. Um, But El means God, E-L. So El Shaddai is the mighty God. Elohim is just the plural of El. El just means God. Like El and Elijah, as in my God is Jehovah, is Yahweh. Or El and Emmanuel, as in God is with us. So the plural is given to God in Genesis, although they refer to him as a singular in the text. So there's a sense of some plurality to God that they don't quite get the first kind of hint of the Trinity happening in Genesis 1. They know it's not multiple gods, but not quite as simple as having one God. And the fact that God has called this name here and that it predates the name he was given to Moses and to Abraham is a good reason to believe that this is not Moses just sort of taking dictation from heaven. More likely, this is Moses compiling the the ancient stories that the Hebrews already had in their oral tradition and sort of putting them down in record under God's seal of inspiration and truth. Because these are ancient Hebrews who are climbing out of Egypt into Canaan with all this cultural baggage from Babylon. They've heard and picked up a lot of ideas of who God is. And all these peoples have ideas about who God is and how he made the world. And so this time, God calls Moses up onto the mountain and he gives him the wisdom and the authority to say that Genesis 1 is the record that you shall have of how I made the universe. And Genesis 2 is the record of how I made people specifically. And Genesis 3 is the record of how sin entered the world. Genesis 4, the record of what the first humans born into sin were like, and therefore what the rest of you are like. This is the record of creation that God reached into history to endorse. So why did only the Hebrews get it? Well, the truth is that the people around the Hebrews knew something of the creation of the world, even if they were pretty off track by the time this happens. All the ancient cultures have a creation story and there are usually some bolts of similarity running through them. And why shouldn't there be? Because they're all spread out descendants of Noah. They must have had a common idea of who God was when they started. As they pass these stories down over hundreds of years, what would you expect? Some would get warped and conflated and changed. They will retain some ideas, lose others, end up looking different but with a somewhat similar core. So what else would you expect to happen? I mean, of course, that will happen. So the Babylonians have a creation myth where their god Marduk is elected king of the gods to fight against the the chaos dragon Tiamat. And Marduk has two special powers. He's all-seeing, he has eyes all around his head, and he can speak words that make things happen. He's an all-seeing god who can create through speech. Not too far off the mark, but not close enough. And he defeats this chaos dragon, uses her body to make the world. The Canaanites have their own story about their god, the creator of their world they called El, as in Elohim, El Shaddai. But by the time the Israelites get back to Canaan, the Canaan idea of the, of the gods is so distorted, it's way off the charts. They believe that Baal, uh, one of the younger gods, had seized 
the, the throne of the gods from El, had stolen El's wife, Asherah, and that El had basically vanished entirely from that pantheon. We're looking at all of this because you can see the kind of cultural religious soup into which this writing of Genesis, and particularly Genesis 1, comes. Moses is bringing this account to his people with the inspiration of himself, God, behind it. It's meant to burn away all the accumulated falsehoods and rumors about who God is or isn't and build up the truth that started what they already knew. So yes, El is the creator. God did make the world, but they're about to go into a land filled with shrines to Baal and Asherah from top to bottom. And when people praise Baal as the one who kicked El off the, the control seat of creation, it's an idea so warped and blasphemous and dangerous to the truth of God in the world that God uses it as a demonstration of his ultimate power and authority. He takes his people, who are in a position of total powerlessness, primitive slaves under the heel of alien gods in Egypt. He punches a hole in Egypt, uh, the greatest military power the world had ever known, and completely discredits the gods of that land with his power. He takes these poor, weak, ignorant, but now free slaves into the desert. Strange kings with their armies keep attacking them with swords and chariots, and these slaves with clubs and spears defend themselves and invariably crush everyone who tries to come at them, miraculously enough. God takes them to a mountain and he gives them a law with which they're going to build a nation and the truth about the creation of the world that they are to keep. He tells them that now you know what the truth really is. You can never let this be compromised by what is false. Write it down over and over, bind it to your heads, write it on your door frames, talk about it as you walk down the street. Your job as God's people is to keep this truth preserved from now till the end of time so that people who seek God can find him. They can know that God created the world, that he put the stars in the sky, and that he made mankind. And it wasn't a cosmic battle. It was an act of creative love. The battle came after when the ones he made rebelled. And El did not lose. El can't lose. But his divine plan to overcome sin has a long arc. So live faithfully in his ways, and he will draw you close to him. And now that you know this, you are going back into the land that I promised your father Abraham, that you would inhabit through the generations, and you are going to find every shrine to the lie that is Baal, and you are going to smash it, and every Asherah pole erected to a fictional wife of God, and you will tear it down. And anyone who defies the people of God reclaiming God's land, or who fights under Baal's banner, or who remains in Canaan praying for a false god to save them, you will drive off or kill. Because the world needs to know that there is a God in Israel and he will tolerate no rivals. That is what Genesis 1 meant to the world it was written in. And the story of Israel through time is the story of them grappling badly with the implications of Genesis 1 and the rejections of other gods. That's the frame into which the whole narrative of God's people is set. And that's worth knowing. So that's our cultural, historical angle. What about the poetic, archetypical angle? By poetic, I obviously mean the, the way that it's written, the patterns that draw attention to some parts of the story. And by archetypical, I mean what does it teach us, particularly about man? What does a society that reads Genesis 1 look like that a society that doesn't read Genesis 1 would not look like? 
Because make no mistake, this is a teaching story. All of Genesis is. It's so old that it predates laws. Think about that. God didn't lay down his law until Moses came. Before Moses, God's people were in tribes. The world they lived in was slowly coming to grips with the idea that you could have a list of rules that you would expect everyone to follow. And before they had laws, they had stories, and stories were how they taught people how to live with one another and how to live. And this works today, too, on the individual level. Some kids are too young to understand rules, causing no end of frustration. They will break rules whenever they can because they just don't get the idea of keeping them. You tell a five-year-old, don't play with that, don't push your sister, don't pull the dog's tail, and then what is he going to do? He will play with that, he will push his sister, and he will get bit by the dog. But what might help is if he has, say, an older brother that he's latched onto, and he will do everything he can to be like that older brother. He will demand the same color cup at the table, he will want the same food. Long before he can respect rules, he will learn by an example set for him that he embraces. That's what I mean by archetype. So when I was about five myself, my dad uh, built a sand pit at the back of the house um, for myself and my sister. We had a trailer load of sand dumped in the front yard, and dad had to run it to the back and loads in the wheelbarrow. And the most fun I ever had in that sand pit was filling it, because I had a little red plastic wheelbarrow. And Dad would fill up his barrel, and I'd rush after him, and I'd have a little trowel, like a tiny shovel for myself, and I'd get about 20% of the sand I was flicking around into it, into the, uh, the barrel, and then I'd follow him back to the pit, dump it, get some of it in, um, and then follow him back to the front, back and forth all day. That was the most fun I ever had with that sand pin, because I thought, I'm going to be like this person. I will do exactly what he does. So... What do we read in Genesis 1 that has that teaching value, that poetic value? Well, we know that basic structure of Genesis 1, we have six days in which God makes different elements of the world. Day 7, of course, starts in Genesis 2, and we'll worry about that some other time. But the six days of creation have this pattern to them. So from the start, there's this refrain from God that he sees what he's made, and it's good. It comes up six times, once for every day, but not once every day and you get an extra seventh, and it was very good at the end. It's kind of odd, that sequence. Day one is good, day two, no comment. Day three is good, twice. Day four and five are good, day six is good, and at the very end of day six, a bonus special, very good. What's supposed to be, this is supposed to mean? Why did the tellers of the story seem to miss that good on day two? Do they just get sloppy writing it and then by the time God was deciding whether or not to canonize it into scripture forever, he went, good enough, and let it pass through. No, this is the place that God chooses to define good. It's obviously never come up in scripture before. This is the first chapter. What is good? God has not spoken in scripture about anything until these verses. So what does good mean? Good means complete, whole, what it is supposed to be is what makes it good. In verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Once he created the light, the light is done, it is complete. Darkness is confined to the night, light is abundant to the day, good. When he makes the sun, moon, and stars, that's good. When he makes the fish and the birds, that's good. Animals, good. The oddity here comes in days 2 and 3. 
Day two, God separates the waters from the waters. He creates the sky. And on day three, creates the dry land and leaves the sea behind. The end of day two, it's not good because it's not done yet. Day three, he divides that other half of the waters. He makes dry land and the sea, and he calls that good. He's divided the world at that point into three realms, the sky, the sea, and the land. That's the kind of uh, division of the world that runs through all cultures. That's complete, and the same day he populates the land with plants, and that's good too. That's also complete. So if this story is, is read to your ancient Hebrew children, then they hear it again and again. They know that something is only good when it is complete in the way God wanted it to be. And if you want to make something complex and beautiful, like a house or a relationship or a life for yourself, you work on the essential parts until each of them is complete. And when the whole thing is complete, that's very good. And there's a pattern structure to the days themselves. This is sometimes called the forming and the filling. Because verse 2 says that the earth was formless and void, so it needs to be formed, and it needs to have something to fill it. And so days 1 to 3, God forms, and days 4 to 6, he fills. He makes day and night, by extension, the, the cosmos outside the world. On day four, he fills that cosmos with stars and with the moon and with the sun. He populates the day and night with the sun and the moon and the stars. Day two, he divides the waters between the oceans and the sky. Day five, he fills the oceans and the sky with birds and fish. Day three, he forms the dry land and the vegetation on the land. Day six, he creates all the creatures for the land and the people that will inhabit it. And he does this by dividing and multiplying. Day one to three, he separates the light from the dark, he separates the sky from the waters, separates the earth from the waters, and then he says to the creatures to go forth and multiply and fill in the earth. He makes distinctions between things and causes them to multiply. Animal and man, male and female, they multiply in their kinds. That's a little weird, right? Because God has just demonstrated his ability to make things immediately from nothing. Why does he outsource his creating to creation just now? Well, because creation reflects him. What else would it reflect? Before creation, there was nothing else to reflect. So he makes a creative creation, a creation with the capacity to procreate. And his greatest work is man and woman who are not just creative in that they can reproduce, but also in their ability to discover things in God's will, to define them as whole new things and then reproduce them to make new things. This is God teaching man about patterns. It's how we think. It's God inventing the human mind to divide things from one another and recognize them as their own kinds. Now, that might sound a little bit high and fluffy, but it's the basis of the ideas that we can learn and teach and know things in the world. It's the foundation of science. And all that comes from the patterns of Genesis 1. And finally, there's these two ideas here, creation, ex nihilo, and chaos and order. These are, these are two very big ideas about how the universe started. Most ancient myths of other cultures begin with a sea of chaos, of unlimited, unformed potential. And then order is forced upon that to make it into something useful. So when Marduk defeats the dragon of chaos in the Babylonian myth, He's taken the churning, unused potential and made something real out of it. He makes the world from it. 
That's this chaos order idea. And lots of Christian thinkers say that Genesis 1 is the first ancient refutation of that. There's no chaos to begin with. There's nothing. And then God creates. The world is formless and void. Creation comes ex nihilo, out of nothing. And certainly that's what it says. God doesn't need to go slay a dragon to use its bits to make the world. He doesn't need to find a resource with which to build. He just makes it happen. But I actually think the two sides overlap immensely. Because what chaos is, is potential. And potential is nothing. Imagine you have a friend who is an amazing artist. You are staying with them for two days. And there is a lump of clay in their studio. What is it? It's nothing. It's artist clay. Its purpose is to become something. But it's nothing yet. It could be anything, but it's nothing. That's what chaos is. You wake up the next day, what do you expect to find when you go into the studio? Anything. An ashtray, an owl, a little sculpture of you looking really philosophical at clay. The only limitation is your friend's skill and what the clay can support. But our God is all-powerful. He can make anything out of nothing. Everything is full of potential to him. With our God, everything is possible. He can make the sun out of empty space. He can make... Life in a blank world. He can take weak, ignorant, poor slaves out of the most destitute oppression and make them the vehicle for the most powerful message the world has ever received. He can take you, flawed and stubbornly sinful as you are, and make from the potential in you someone worth keeping around forever. He can reform the sinful, doomed core of you and fill you with the Holy Spirit and make you a new creation because that is who he is. It doesn't matter how far gone you are. By sending his son to die for you, he makes you worth dying for. And the Israelites had muddy glimpses of of what their God was trying to do with the Messiah, but to us with the, the full revelation, the whole gospel just launches itself out from Genesis 1 and onwards. So what does all this mean? What are we going to take away from this? Well, it could mean anything, but I'm going to give you two things. First, it's that our God is not like other gods. Genesis stands alone among creation stories in all the world as the restoration of a truth that had been so badly warped Those that came before it were barely recognizable, and those that come after it are just slightly inspired imitators that miss the point. When you follow the God of the Bible, you're not just choosing one God from a selection of gods you could follow. You are finding the real God, the God of the mountain, the creator of the universe, who moves the creation, who acts creatively in those he has created. You are gazing at the genuine article when others are mesmerized by the jumping shadows cast by his light. So take a break this week to read Genesis 1 again and just marvel at what God has done. There is no one like him. If all the gods men had ever worshipped were real and had all the powers that they have described for them, they would still not be worth taking a second of worship away from the Elohim. How much of creation do we just take for granted because the fact God made it is a point of fact with no action? Attached to it. When was the last time you thanked God for the sun 
or the dry land under your feet. Our God is not like other gods. His people should praise him like no other people have praised. And they should live like no other people have lived. And that God, whom Genesis describes creative and powerful, dividing and multiplying, drawing order out of chaotic potential, you are made in his image. You were born to be, in some sense, like the creator. Obviously, you don't have that ultimate power to make something from nothing, but he does. And when you take Jesus Christ as your savior, when the Son of God redeems you, he breaks the bond of sin, which is the only thing that holds you back from being what you were intended to be. Complete and good. The Holy Spirit is in you after that point. And every day he is urging you to participate in the act of your own creation. There is nothing that stops you from doing the things the Spirit is putting on your conscience to do. Who you are today is fixed, but who you are tomorrow is influenced by what you are willing to pull out of that chaotic potential of tomorrow. If you say right now that I'm going to wake up at 6 a.m. and read Genesis 1 as the first act in a new habit of reading God's word daily like I always said I would, that's within your power. But if you don't make that decision, or whatever decision you need to make that is like it, then that better future will never manifest. It will always be nothing. And you'll be squandering your birthright as a child of the creator by creating Nothing. Who would you be 10 years from now if you spent the next 10 years doing the things that you knew you were supposed to do? Maybe eat a little better, maybe mend some rifts in relationships, develop better spiritual habits. Maybe intentionally learn how to speak the gospel to people you meet so you don't feel like dead weight when you come to church. These are small things, but they are components of a better human being than you are right now. And you can form them, and God will fill them, and they will be good. And 10 years from now, you might just be very good. You can right now hold the Creator's hand and reach into the chaos of what you could be and begin to pull something out. Some events are outside of your control, obviously, outside of your power. But if your goal is to become the person that God wants you to be, well, you're in luck because that's his goal for you too. And there is nothing outside of his power. That's what it means to live in the image of God. That's your birthright as a child of the creator. It's made available to you by the blood of the Savior and made possible by the indwelling of his spirit in you. Never forget that. Let's pray. Father God, there is no God like you, and all of your creation gives you praise. So also we praise you. Thank you for the light, for the sky and the sea and the land, for the trees and the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea and the beasts on the land and for the broken, sinful people that you have decided to make into eternal treasures. Help us to be what you want us to be. 
Give us the courage and the direction to improve ourselves by the power of your spirit, not just because it is better to be more like you, but also because we want to be better witnesses for your gospel, witnesses of your son's death and resurrection to the world so they too can come to know who you are, the almighty God. Bless your people, Lord, we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.